Hi, my name is Yasmin Tarehi, and this is Gateways to Awakening, where we host one-on-one conversations with leading experts in wellness and spirituality. On today's episode, we'll be featuring our guest, Beth Riley. She's a global leader in somatic movement, education, and therapy, and she's a seasoned somatic movement activist with over 40 years of experience facilitating workshops in movement, yoga, and meditation. She's also a founding member of the Mount Madonna Center, and she's been invited to present at Esalen, the Open Center in New York City, and the Skyros Institute in Greece. And her website is themovingwell.com. So Beth, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you for having me. It's a delight to have this conversation. Likewise, likewise. So Beth, can you tell us what does movement actually mean to you? So it's a huge question. And I would say movement is life. And Everything living is moving. And when we access our ability to move down to the microcosm, from macro to micro, we have an engagement with life that is unparalleled and can actually inform us in every aspect of living on Earth at this time. So, you know, one of the things that happens is that the fitness industry and the physical education um, industry has created. kind of a certain aspect of movement that is pretty limited. So when you understand, when one understands that movement is life and that every living thing on earth is imbued with movement, ultimately movement is what I am as well as what I do. Beautiful. And Beth, how did you discover this as a healing modality in your life? I mean, were you always um, a person that embraced this concept of movement in your life or did you discover it? And, you know, tell us a little bit about how you experienced this modality. Yeah, this is a long story. So, uh, but it started when I was five, I would say my, my opening discovery, I was taking a creative movement class with a, uh, a Feldenkrais practitioner named Chloe Scott in the 50s, long time ago. And at the end of this course, we laid on the floor and she flopped our bodies and let us lay on the grass and look at the sky. And I felt one with everything. It was this aha moment. And for, for, you know, 10 or 15 years after that, I went to ballet, I went to yoga. So this soul call that I was born with, I think, to move actually I kept looking around, where is it? Where is it after I'd had this awakening? And then I went into um, Yosemite Valley at the Yosemite Institute, and they showed us a film by Alan Watts called Buddhism, Man, and Nature. This is when I was 17. And they likened life to a flowing stream, his, his amazing English accent. You know, he's got this great voice. And how life can move and we have to honor the movement of it as a flow itself. And when we're in relationship, in intimate rapport with that flow, we can meet the boulders in the stream. We can pause in the still points of the stream. So it was a, an awakening that I, I would say persisted until I met Emily Conrad, the founder of Continuum in um, 1978, so quite a long time ago. And that was when I really saw the whole concept of the universe is moving. 
and we are part of this 14 million year old history of life on earth and every cell and we continue to evolve as a species through the movement of water and how we unfold and that that was that then became the focus of my life many years ago Wow. And Beth, you know, I'm so fascinated by this idea of movement. And I think in our Western culture, I think that there's a lot of, I would say rigidity and structure feels like, um, kind of big themes that I experienced at least growing up in the, uh, America. And I'm just really curious, like, how do you embody the idea of, I would say fluidity really, right? The fluidity of life. How do you really embody that? when you're surrounded by such a rigid structure around you? It is quite a challenge. And as I, as I, um, I went through the education program at Stanford in the physical education program, and it was a, a rude awakening of what kind of um, movement modalities were available in most school programs. So to contrast the, the, the movement of fluidity so we have to start with what is a body. So the question always is, can we allow our body to be defined as a process, a creative process instead of a machine? So most of the exercise and movement modalities that are available to us in modern times are based on mechanical models, as you say. They're angular, they're repetitive, um, somewhat rigid. Uh, and, and many of them, the whole aerobics movement actually began with military training exercises. So not only that, but they have, they have, you know, inherently this war with the body that starts to get built in instead of love. That is the nature of the human body to be in a fluid process and become intimate with the movement and the intelligence of life that I'm actually carrying in every breath. Wow. And I've also heard this described as like a very kind of um, feminine embrace, like this this movement, this kind of flow. And I'm wondering if you have any you know reference points um, on that because I, you mentioned that there's a that you know aerobics was a rigid kind of um, military kind of invention. Um, and so I'm just curious because I always felt that way growing up. I was an athlete uh, in high school, a pretty serious athlete in high school. And I think a lot of the sports that I embrace felt very, I would say, more masculine centered. Um, and I did do ballet for a short while. And I think as a older uh, you know, person, I, I started to embrace things like dance, things like Qigong. And I just noticed that the movements felt even just more circular rather than I would say linear kind of boxed. So I'm just, you know, curious if you have anything to share on that uh, piece. Well, it's, it's interesting you bring that up because I felt the very same thing. And, and, and when I met Emily Conrad and the whole in the whole inspiration of fluidity and moving as continuum suggests is that in movement, if we are movement, if we identify as movement, there are no opposites. So even the polarization of masculine feminine is, it becomes indistinct as you're going into the source of movement. But the, the interesting thing is for hundreds of years, we've been dominated by this mechanical uh, 
patriarchal, if you will, approach to the body. And it, it began long ago when Galileo, Galileo made a deal with the Pope and wanted to do a dissection. And the Pope said, you can do a dissection as long as you don't mention God and the body in the same sentence. So it was this whole um, Cartesian split that started to happen. And that kept getting reinforced by these industrial approaches to movement and exercise. So having something that's so earth-centered and flowing and, and um, creative and healing as the movement of water, as our birthright, we, are, we grow in the amniotic fluid. We are, we, through the interaction of the fluids in that process of our, our conception and internal womb, we have the movement of water starting to teach us how to enter the unknown right there. So it is incredibly feminine, but it is also inclusive of both. So that's important to recognize the inclusivity of movement. Wonderful. And can you tell us about the movement work of Continuum that you've been involved in? Yeah. So as I mentioned, um, it, it was it was founded or kind of ma- made a. It was it was fourteen million years ago that it began. So, <laughs> but Emily Conrad sort of brought it forward. Um, she was a dancer in New York, and she started to dance with Catherine Dunham in the. Um, dance studios of New York. She was the first person to bring in drums and dance barefoot in the dance studios of New York in the 50s. And then she she went to Haiti and she was part of a dance company in Haiti and had this sense when she returned back to New York after five years that when she moved in Haiti, she moved like a Haitian. When she was in New York, she moved like a New Yorker and talked and you know functioned in those ways as the culture determines but the curiosity arose in, in her, what is the biological movement that I'm actually a part of that's beyond culture? Can I live in my culture and not be bound by it? So that became the inquiry of continuum. And she proceeded to work with people with spinal cord injuries and found that if you innovate new neural pathways around the area of injury, you can actually open the gateway to profound possibilities, not only in movement, but also in identity, how I describe myself, and experience my life as whole and complete. Wow. Um, I have so many questions about (laughs) after that. Um, I never really thought about that in terms of the way we move culturally and how that informs how we show up in spaces and places. But, you know, anecdotally, I I, I spend a lot of time in the Middle East. I spent a lot of time in Latin America and obviously in in, uh, San Francisco. And I used to live in New York. So I know that the pace of movement is very different depending on the city that you're in. Um, But, you know, so I'm curious, like, how do you maintain your identity, um, maybe your natural identity of movement wherever you go? I mean, is, are we able to maintain that or is that, you know, something that is just kind of, you become a product of your culture? 
what a great question and appropriate for these times for sure. I think the, the capacity to innovate. So our bodies are creative processes. And as we're in a particular context, as the intelligent life that, that they are, our bodies start to shape themselves according to that context. So once we know that, we can actually become aware of it through a regular embodiment practice that invites new awarenesses to come forward. The awareness of my breath as movement, the awareness of sensation as movement, the awareness of uh, my thought and my relationships as movement. And then I can, it, it actually helps me really see that there is no, no um, static uh, entity in life. It's actually how we view things that become static. So then the view itself becomes fluid and open. And so, you know, the, the encouragement is to establish some kind of regular practice so that you can replace the amount of information and conditioning that all of us have received from the cultures that we live in with the more biological, intelligent movement that's waiting to be engaged with, waiting. It's, it's like this silent lover inside us. And you turn your attention towards it with curiosity, with kindness, with spaciousness, and with your whole self. And the fluidity of your body, the movement that's inherent, comes forward and says, you called, you called, and that becomes an engaging conversation with the, the deeper creativity of your own organism, if you will. Hmm. You know, hearing you say that makes me just want to get up and, and move. <laughs> Good. Because <laughs> yeah, I, th I think so many of us, um, I could speak for folks maybe more in Western culture, are just, we, we work a lot, you know, we're sitting at our desks a lot. We, I think, have become divorced from those, like you described it, even the sensations of what's happening in our body. And and yeah, I think we forget that we are our bodies. I think sometimes, I jokingly say, you know, at least in San Francisco, I sometimes feel that people you know, look at their body as if it's their pet, not their body. <laughs> yeah, I use that image a lot, actually. We put it on a leash, we take it from place to place. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Absolutely. So, Beth, you talked about, you know, daily practices to become more embodied. Can you share, uh, I know, you, you know, you teach uh, multi-week, multi-month classes on this, but is there anything that you could share as like a, a couple tips or one or two tips for our audience to start becoming more embodied uh, day to day. And I'm, yeah, I'm just curious, like, what do you do um, every day to ensure that you are embodied? Yeah, thank you. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's such an opening to that question. I, I do what I call movitation. So I usually sit and feel in a, in a kind of traditional meditation posture, what's going on. I ground, quote unquote, and feel the movement going on. Then I lay on the floor and I start to breathe. And sometimes I will um, do a sound. Sound is movement. And when we use sound, it penetrates the static places in our body with gentle um, 
wave motion. So the sound waves start to go in through the tissue itself to awaken sensation. And sensation is the, the language of the body. So how do we learn that new language if we're distant from it? It's, it takes repeated practice. Um, and so even just using something as simple as bringing your hands to your breastbone and taking the sound of M, something like this. I'm training my awareness to value the subtle sensation of sound moving through my bones. And that training is reinforced every time I turn my attention towards it with curiosity. So I think it was Mark Nepo who said, a meaningful practice brings positive change. Habitual tendencies preserve the status quo. So it's particularly important during these times when so many of us are on the computer and sitting and just being able to access the breath as a wave, the sound as a wave, feeling the sits bones wherever you're sitting. So there, it's a constant awareness of the feedback that my body's giving me as the primary language to invite me into something I may never have touched before or needs touching and tending. Really fascinating, Beth. I, I will definitely try the sound meditation piece because mm -hmm. I don't, I do meditate, but I think adding that sound element, um, you know, sounds incredible in terms of what uh, the reaction of, I think, my cells to, you know, if I make that sound. So I, I will try that. Right. <laughs> Right. And Beth, can you walk us through a story or an example of how your life changed with movement? Maybe, you know, pre, I, you mentioned earlier that you, you discovered movement at a very young age, at least five, which is incredibly young. Yeah. Um, but I'm, I'm curious if, you know, you could talk to us about either examples from your life and how it's changed for you, how you've been able to you know, operate in the world differently with this practice. And then also a story that uh, maybe could be inspiring for our audience from folks who have been taking your, your course. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So I, I, the, the story that comes to mind and I, I do often refer back to this cause it was a, a revelatory moment. I had a daughter 25 years ago and um, had pretty debilitating pain for months afterwards in my left lower back. And I, I would move and it was persistent. And was, I was finally diagnosed with something called ankylosing spondylitis, which is a slow fusion of the spine. And mine was starting to fuse from the left sacroiliac joint. And uh, the doctor said, if you don't pick your position, you'll become a hunchback. So it was this, you know, and he said, I recommend straight so that you can prevent that. And knowing already the, the work of continuum and the power of fluid movement, I said, well, I don't think I'm going to pick a position. I think I'm going to pick water and fluidity. And since that time, keeping my spine moving fluidly, I have no pain. 
you know, I'm in my late sixties. I have, um, no, uh, musculoskeletal issues as long as I keep my movement practice going. And really it, it does, um, there's kind of a conversion systemic conversion that happens when you do practice regularly. So that's a key component of, um, one one story and then i'll tell the second story i'll tell is is something that just happened i just did a seven week course on how to have a home embodiment practice and finished last week actually and um, there was a woman in the class who had hip replacement surgery she was she's in her late 70s she had for for years been in pain after the surgeries and we had did one exercise where we were lying down putting your feet up on a chair, gently touching the, the junction of the legs and the pelvis, and doing a simple breath, like a, an extended exhale, with the awareness in that area for 20 to 30 minutes. And she got up and was pain-free. Wow. And, and you know, for me... That's so encouraging as a facilitator to know that something that I share with the world is helping even one person have more comfort and more ease in their bodies, in their lives. So that was, for me, kind of a miracle. And it, it happens quite often, actually. And it's, all, it's always a surprise. So it's always a surprise. Because one of the things about a movement practice in this realm of fluid curiosity is if you go in with too heavy of an expectation, it limits the possibilities. So if she had started that exercise with, I've got to get rid of my pain, it might not have actually had the same effect. But she went in with this, whoa, I don't know what this is, but this is a new breath, a new position, a new way of moving in my body, but I'm going to try it. And not knowing what she was going to, what the result was going to be, that's usually when the most possibility of change presents itself. Wow. It, it almost goes back to your earlier point about how your perspective and your viewpoint also have to be fluid like water. Absolutely. Wow. It's, it's so true. I mean, one of the, 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 the um, beautiful writers and beings that I had the privilege of knowing was Darlene Cohen, who is a, um, a Zen priest at the San Francisco Zen Center who lived with rheumatoid arthritis, and she also did continuum. And after a night of um, moving and sounding and resting, and we would do these long retreats where we would stay in the room as an incubator for two to three days. And, and by the end of it, she said, I found the moments between the pain. Mm. Wow. And that's when she had her kind of revelation that if she puts too much of a goal on her practice, it's limited and it becomes too direct instead of just a way of living. Wow. I mean, I feel like that's true for most things in life too, right? <laughs> yes, definitely. <laughs> and what have you seen as kind of um, a shifts? that might have happened, you know, within your practice since the pandemic started. I know that we're, you know, we've moved, we're moving out of it, um, of this pandemic, but 
I'm just wondering, you know, what have you seen over the last year and, and what do you think are some of the biggest maybe new thought processes around movement and around the work that you're doing? Yeah, it's been, it's been a wild ride. I'll say that. <laughs> <laughs> and, and at, at first, this was last March, March, 20, 2020. Yeah. I was in the middle of a weekly series and I had to convert to the last class being online. And it was at that point I said, I'm not going to do this. This is not for me. I was so clear that I didn't want to go online. And then I was president of the board of the International Somatic Movement Education and Therapy Association at the time. And the executive director was supposed to do an interview with the Shift Network and she couldn't do it. She asked me to sub for her. It was the, the Shift Network uh, Somatic Movement Summit. And so I did an interview very much like this one with the Somatic Summit people, and 65,000 people registered. This was just a month after the, the pandemic started. And within a month, I had more interest in the work that I was offering to the world at this time than I ever expected. And what has been clear in the year since is that somatic movement in particular, which is somatic means the experiencing the body, the lived body from inside. So somatic movement is always um, encouraging this action of interoception, which awakens empathy and a sense of well-being and relaxation. And so the, the demand and the interest in finding a way to actually treat oneself, I, I sometimes call this, as um, my osteopathic friends do, a, a, a self-osteopathic treatment, the fluid movement. So nobody was able to see the doctor and get a hands-on treatment for a long time, but they could do a practice at home mm. that had some of the similar uh, results. And um, it's just continued to open my eyes to what's possible that I, I really wasn't open to at the beginning. And, and what's possible is this worldwide awareness of the sea change, if you will, of connecting to one another and supporting one another to thrive in life. And Emily used to say, Emily Conrad, Continuum's founder, used to say that the internet was a prosthetic device to what each of us could attain through our resonant field of connection. So in a way, this is the ultimate training wheels right now that we're, we're, we're having to connect with one another. And there are platforms that I'm really excited about discovering where people come together and listen and are present with one another in a way that wouldn't have been possible before the pandemic. And it's so encouraging. So I, I, I mean, there's so much more, but that's personally what I've experienced. Yeah. And I'm, I'm just personally uh, curious about whether that shift is going to continue after you know, life kind of, I'm not going to say get, gets back to normal, but maybe returns back to some level of, um, you know, post-pandemic world. And 
I'm just, you know, curious of that, if that is going to continue. And I guess this probably remains to be seen. Mm-hmm. Um, so Beth, why do you think that this subject is important? Why have you dedicated so much of your life to it? I, I think I, I, you know, I, as you mentioned in the intro as an early, um, yogi and, um, interested in alternative ways of seeing from the time of my teens and the whole aspect of establishing Mount Madonna Center, which was an intentional community based on the practice of yoga. It's, it's so clear that there is um, a hunger in humanity for feeling whole and alive. Whole. So even the National Institute of Health's next five-year plan is dedicated to whole person health. I mean, this is, it's, it's, it's people are hungry and, and mm, not hungry exactly, but longing, even if they're unconscious, they don't know they're longing. There's this way of feeling at home in your skin that is so satisfying and I know it from my bones you know I know this feeling of being at home in my own skin and that can I share this can I share this so I I think at one point I said to people who I was training don't don't teach people this just share your practice just share with them why why you love this and they'll they'll join you or they won't. But um, right now we need to expand our ability to enter the unknown, as you mentioned. It is so vital that we have all of our biointelligence available to us as we evolve into the next phase post-pandemic. Where are we heading? How will we know our way? As my dear friend and colleague Susan Harper says, the trail emerges as you sniff it, Hmm. which is we use our body as the sensing locus to figure out what feels true, what feels real, what feels right. And can that continue to be a value in this next phase of our evolution? I love that. I love that quote too. It's amazing. <laughs> so Beth, you know, what are some of the books or resources, obviously continue movement uh, you've referenced in this conversation, but are there any other books or resources that have inspired you on this path? I mean, what do you think could be helpful for folks who are trying to become more embodied, become, you know, add more movement to their lives? Yeah, that's it's great. I, I appreciate that question because, you know, it, this this movement is a, generally an experiential, um, participatory event. But um, Emily Conrad did write her autobiography called "Life on Land: The Story of Continuum," and it's um, a beautiful description of the work. And my colleague and friend Bonnie Gintis wrote a book called Engaging the Movement of Life, exploring health and embodiment through osteopathy and continuum. And then I, with the help of Elaine Colandrea 
at Watermark Arts, and my co-author Priscilla Stanton Auchincloss wrote a book on how to have a personal embodiment practice called A Moving Inquiry, The Art of Personal Practice. And all of those three books are available online. But I would recommend finding a guide or a teacher or a class um, that you resonate with. So the Continuum Teachers Association is very vital and alive. And there are teachers all over the world who are leading virtual classes right now. That's a a key um, resource. And definitely to spend time outside in nature, to really let yourself soak in you being a part of this natural world. Your body is integral to the evolution of life on Earth and how we recognize that when we are in a natural environment for longer than five minutes. (laughs) Mm, I love that. So Beth, what do you want to tell our listeners about their health and wellness? What's sort of your main takeaway? 10 minutes. Give yourself 10 minutes to lie on the floor every day and listen to your body's voice. Honor and empower your body's voice. There's always information available through the movement going on under your skin. And as you start to turn your lens of attention into your own experience, and particularly into the fluidity of your body as the guide, transformation is inevitable. It will, it's inevitable. We soak in the transformative fluid of our own substance and new life occurs. Beth, you're so quotable. <laughs> I can probably take a lot of quotes from this entire conversation. Good. <laughs> love that. I love that. And I love that the way that you speak about the body is almost like it is kind of just a part of nature, which of course it is. But I think as humans, we, we associate more with our minds mm-hmm. rather than thinking of our body as like a plant that needs to be watered, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So, uh, Beth, I'm going to do a rapid fire round. Um, Mm -hmm. This is just a fun way of getting to know our guests. So first thing that comes to mind when I ask these questions, what's your favorite food? Yeah. Yeah. So I love kitchery. (laughs) (laughs) And I don't know if people know what that is, but um, kitchery is, I, I learned how to make it when I lived at Mount Madonna and it is so delicious. It's an Ayurvedic grounding balanced recipe that includes all of the doshas, um, all of the different types of food. And it's so soothing. It's lentils, basmati rice, ghee, um, your traditional Indian spices. And that is, you know, my chicken soup for the soul. Uh, I I actually know Kitchery and we we didn't speak about this, but uh, you know I mentioned it in your bio that you're the co-founder of the Mount Madonna Center, and I know that they served Kitchery. <laughs> I believe mm-hmm. always. <laughs> it's so good. Yeah, it's a uh, it's an incredible um, recipe, and I'm sure folks can find it online. Okay, mm-hmm. favorite morning routine. Yeah, so I, I described it a little earlier where I movitate. I call it movitation. But I love to go outside before I do anything and get my my body and mind connected to the natural world. So 
in the morning, I wake up pretty early. I have tea. I take my cup of tea outside. I walk through my garden. I just pause and feel my life today and then go back inside and finish my tea and go into my meditation room where I movitate. <laughs> Love that. <laughs> and a favorite beverage, even though you may have answered it with the last question. No, actually that I, well, it's related to my favorite beverage right now is I make my own kombucha. So I, I went to a friend did a course and gave us all these little scobies that you make kombucha with. And so every two weeks I brew three quarts of kombucha and it's, it's soothing and refreshing. And, um, I feel like it's, um, so healing to also, you know, use my own process, my own fermentation process as part of what I'm ingesting. So that's pretty satisfying. Amazing. And uh, last question, Beth, uh, what book are you reading right now? Ah, well, I have a stack of books and of course, but the one that surfaced recently is called um, Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Kumara. Yeah. <laughs> and it's a lot about indigenous wisdom and shifting our consciousness in relation to nature. And I, I, I feel like the, the work that I'm doing with continuum and other movement modalities is able to give people access to that indigenous wisdom that is known to ground us in place um, where we are and really honor the uh, legacy of life on earth. Oh, that's so, so good. I love that you referenced braiding sweetgrass. And I think that's so spot on. This indigenous wisdom, I think, is is making a huge comeback <laughs> all around. Yeah. We're like, oh yeah, we have to get back to our like basics, our roots, our, our you know, Mother Earth. So mm -hmm. Yeah. And the experience of it. That's the key. Mm. Experience the Mother Earth in our bones. Yeah. So powerful. So uh, Beth, are there any resources that you can point folks to in order to learn more about you? Well, I do have a website, and I, I was honored to have um, my friend Chris McKenna, who started Mindful Schools, gift me with the design. So it has um, it, it, it's just a beautiful um, exchange that we had around this. And it's themovingwell.com, themovingwell, all one word, dot com. And um, I am also a colleague of Continuum Teachers Association, and ISMEDA. I mentioned ISMEDA, the International Somatic Movement Education and Therapy Association, has just completed a beautiful online course that is now available as an evergreen course, where people can experience all sorts of different somatic movement modalities in samples, and that is open until the end of this year. And that's ISMEDA dot org i-s-m-e-t-a dot org wonderful beth thank you so much for your time i feel so inspired to uh, bring in this this movement practice into my life and i want to move right after this interview so thank you so much <laughs> yay more power more power to that <laughs> 
Wonderful. So for our audience, thanks for joining and for listening. In this episode, we learned about why the body needs to move, a conversation about movement with Beth Riley. And you can tune in to Gateways to Awakening, where we host one-on-one conversations with leading experts in wellness and spirituality.